to another episode of Anthropod. I'm Rupa Pillai. Last year, Stacy Topazova and I had the opportunity to speak with Professor Tobias Rees from McGill University in Montreal. Professor Rees is an associate professor in the Department of Social Studies of Medicine. We spoke with him about his article, Humanity Plan, or On the Stateless Today, also being an Anthropology of Global Health, published in Cultural Anthropology last year. In this article, Professor Reese discusses how organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation opt not to approach global health concerns through nation states. Instead, they adopt a biological understanding of human disease populations, which informs how they tackle global health issues. It was an interesting interview in which Professor Reese had both Stacy and I constantly rethinking the categories we used. Enjoy. To be his race. Welcome to Anthropod. Thank you. So I suppose we can start maybe just by framing the article. Maybe you can elaborate on on the context, how you became involved in this kind of work. Okay. I never planned to study global health. When I arrived at McGill, I had worked for almost 10 years about the brain, about neuroscience. And... Um, the faculty of medicine just had a new dean and the old dean took office in our building and he asked me very parochial, so my son, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, maybe global health. And he said, let me call my friend Alan. And uh, a week later, I flew to New York where I met Alan Bernstein. Alan Bernstein uh, is a prominent Canadian figure. He was the founding chair of the Canadian Institute of Health Research, so the equivalent to NIH. And he had stepped down as, as chair there a year earlier, so in 2000. Actually, he stepped down in 2006. And then became the director, CEO of the Global HIV Vaccine Enterprise, a spin-off of the Gates Foundation. And I, I flew to New York without any expectations or, you know, hopes or questions. I was just curious to meet him. And I learned that the goal of the enterprise is um, to organize HIV vaccine research on a global scale. And he explained that after the 2003 first efficacy trial, um, so the first phase three trial, 2B trial, of an HIV vaccine, which was called the Vaxgen trial, the pharmaceutical industry withdrew from running, um, fr- from trying to produce an HIV vaccine because it's expensive, massively expensive, and it was totally unclear if it would lead anywhere. And so the field was fairly shattered. And in 2003, in response to this, uh, you know, to the announcement of the withdrawal, uh, Richard Klausner, who was at the time director of the Global Health Department of the Gates Foundation, wrote an article with several others called A Call for a Global HIV Vaccine Enterprise. And the idea was um, to boost HIV vaccine research and to have one central secretariat that would basically coordinate a global division of labor that would basically uh, standardize bioassays, nomenclature, that would organize a division of labor so that efforts would not be doubled and money wasted, so to speak. And I got just really excited about this because at the time, as I said before, I was working about neuroscience, was sort of doing a lab ethnography, had read a lot of SDS work, and there was the chance of, of studying the emergence of a global infrastructure for HIV vaccine research. 
Sarah Franklin had at the time just published a book with two of her colleagues uh, about um, global biology. I thought that, wow, you know, biology can only become global if there is a global infrastructure. So I thought that's exciting. And I can study actually this emergence of a global biological in the making. And I also have, have um, liked the idea or, or was uh, intrigued by the idea that global health is, a is in a certain way a biomodern project. So if you will, in the 19th century, when nation states emerged, they all had social modernity and they wanted to modernize their society. And precisely in so far as global health seemed to be about biology, I was curious about the emergence of uh, biological modernism. So then you bring cutting edge biomedicine, let's say HIV vaccine research and clinical trial sites to fairly remote places and you modernize the biology of the people or at least their biological circumstances of existence. So that, that's how it got started. And it was a, was an infrastructure project, nothing else. Um, when I then began the field work, uh, you know, that basically took a funny form. I flew to hotels in Bethesda or in New York or in Seattle or in Paris. We were sitting somewhere underground, usually in a conference room in a hotel. There were about between 10 and, and 100, depending, depending on, on the meeting. Uh, researchers, activists, and funders, and they were discussing about how to produce an HIV vaccine. It was dramatically boring. It was all about science that I was only beginning to understand. It was all about, you know, GAG and GP120 and the surface structure of molecules. And one day at a lunch break, one of these meetings in Bethesda, I walked up to a woman from the UK, with whom I had spoken before, and was one of the few people I knew personally, and said, isn't it funny, one would assume that you'd have something, you know, more of a humanitarian impulse or something like this. I mean, you know, all you, and she looked at me, I complained basically that they only talk about science, and she looked at me and she was clearly disgusted by what I had just said and said in response, listen, this is real work for humanity. It's not the kind of, let me hold your hand while you're dying, baby, kind of stuff. And I was, I was happy in that moment, sort of, um, because um, I recognized that for her, speaking about the surface structure of molecules that would allow an HIV vaccine to destroy the HIV vaccine, HIV vaccine virus, was actually humanitarian work. Now, if you compare this with classical humanitarian work, you have MSF going to, to places where disasters happen. And you have emergency NGOs that provide help in dramatic situations. And on the other hand, you have a, a different configuration of humanitarianism where people work in labs where they maybe never see faraway places, but where they're actually convinced, ethically convinced that they do humanitarian work. That seemed to me to be different from what we had before. And once I had that entry, I was maybe sensitive enough to recognize these humanity stories about which I write um, in the article. So the long and the short of it is that at one point I then began, began to recognize that for most of the people I work with, uh, their work was a departure from international health, and that international health had divided humanity into a family of nations. Each nation state was responsible itself for its population or its national society, and that they thought this is a problem, this doesn't work well, and that they were looking for alternatives. And their alternatives, one of the alternatives, the Gates Foundation, as I said, was the Gates Foundation who funded the global HIV vaccine enterprise was to put in place 
such, you know, enterprise secretariats. At the time I started that research, several were planned. There was the HIV one was the first one. One was planned for malaria. One was planned for TB, I think. And I just could suddenly see how they basically thought that they're building a new humanity. Well, and I think that's what's fascinating about the article. This quote, I believe, from Alan Bernstein, this is the plan for humanity. This is the driving statement of the first part of your article. And you mention a lot of the components that go into understanding what Alan Bernstein might be getting at. And maybe you could walk us through that more. What is this plan for humanity? What is this notion of humanity that the individuals in your research are understanding? So let's assume it's the late 1990s or so. And... ARVs, so antiretrovirals, were just introduced to the public in the West. That's to say, it happened in 96 at the Vancouver AIDS conference. And within a year, AIDS became basically a chronic disease in, in the West. As Jose Esparza puts it, I, I quote him in the paper, uh, AIDS became another tropical disease, basically, because ARVs are not available there. So some people were basically sitting down in that moment and were saying, what? Something goes wrong. You know, the world is an unfair place. Some people discover that late in life. And they recognize that the system in place to allow for world health doesn't do a great job. They did not sit down and say, oh, the WHO, you know, is a screwed thing or let's forget about international health. We don't like international health. We go for something else. It just basically sat down and said, okay, uh, things seem not to work as they are. What else could we do? And so that was the time when the Global Burden of Disease Studies had been produced. And the Global Burden of Disease Studies um, were very important at the time because they were showing, if you will, disease-specific populations. So what I mean by this, I have to take one step back, is if you have international health, you have basically humanity divided into national populations. From the perspective of the people I've been working with, this is not relevant. What you have are disease-specific populations. So let's say you take sleeping sickness, which is endemic in a few West African places or countries, then you do not divide sleeping sickness into three or four nation states, each one of which would then have to take care of sleeping sickness. No, you just have one specific population at risk of getting sleeping sickness, and this one population runs diagonal to nation states. Or another example, you take serolachmaniasis, which is a disease that is endemic largely in, in uh, India, Nepal, and Bangladesh, then from the perspective of international health, or perspective of the WHO, you have three nations that have parts of the population that are at risk of getting the serolachmaniasis, and the risk is and each nation needs to do something about this. But from the perspective of the global health folks in Seattle I have been working with, you have only one population somewhere in East, in Southeast or in South Asia it's at risk of visceral leishmaniasis. So you have a disease-specific population rather than national populations. And this disease-specific population runs diagonal to nation-states. So the next step then is, who should be taking care of these disease-specific populations? Well, you will not rely on nation-states. If you read, for example, Bill Gates' speech at the World Health Assembly, he, he's, it's actually extraordinary because he goes there and he speaks for about 15 minutes about how nation-states suck. So if you would have basically a national societal approach, you would have, let's say, Nepal taking really well care of their viscerolachmaniasis epidemic, and Nepal did that, but India and Bangladesh didn't do anything. So they were looking for new groups that could 
operate or could provide healthcare beyond, let's say, the nation-state paradigm. And of course, the next thing you think about is that these are NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and also, you know, industry, because industry since the 1970s is no longer a national industry, it's a global industry, so to speak. So a new pattern or a new configuration of caring about world health was emerging. Now, what's most striking is that if you do away with the nation states and the society idea, the concept of society does no longer work. And some people in, in Seattle or at the Gates Foundation told me like in explicit terms that societies do not exist. Society or the social is one way of organizing things into a problem to be solved. That problem could be solved in part in some West European countries. It hasn't worked for most places in the world. And so we look at, at different ways of going about. And their alternative is basically to look at humans as biological beings. So health is not a social issue that could be uh, achieved through redistribution of taxes or something like this or through um, public welfare. No, health is a biological question and it should be uh, addressed by biological means. So if you now compare, you have a binary. I don't like the word because it makes clear that I exaggerate the difference a little bit, but you have a binary. On the one hand, you have international health, you have nation states, you have health as a social good or as a social thing. And on the other hand, you have global health, you have basically uh, disease-specific populations rather than national populations, and you have a focus on the biological rather than on the social. So the decoupling of the vital from the social? Um, you're saying two things. So one thing is, so global health, or at least global health from the Seattle perspective, is partly a departure from the social or a post-social effort to work about world health. And at first, I found that problematic, for sure. But I also remember quite well Hannah Arendt's critique of the social. And and so I returned to reading Arendt very carefully, not, not just the human condition or her work about totalitarianism, but basically her all of her books and many of her articles. And I learned that she had a very specific reason for being a critique of the social, and that is... She recognized that when the concept of society came into existence, also in the late 80s, I think uh, people agree there, uh, conceptual historians agree there, that uh, basically the, the big transition happens between Montesquieu and Rousseau, um, and that the modern concept of the social or society, as we largely use still in the social sciences, is indebted to Durkheim. And so basically what she recognizes is that... Um, when the concept of the social emerges, it's a biological concept. It's basically the idea that one group of people, one race, basically, and the term race is here used as equivalent in the 18th and early 19th century to society. So race and society mean almost the same thing. That one group of people, one race or one society is constitutive of the nation and that this nation deserves its own territory, uh, deserves its own state and its own government. Now, she also is uh, very fully aware of it. Just think about her book on totalitarianism, that never are all the people living on one territory members of that one race slash society. So what that means, she knew better than, than most people because she was a Jew in Nazi Germany and she had no passport, she had no rights, she was not a member of society, she was disposable, so to speak. Uh, she managed to escape to North America where she found a society that is not based on the concept 
or where she found a country or that is not based on the concept of society. Um, and so whenever she was confronted with the social or social welfare or care for the social, she immediately got goosebumps and became suspicious and sometimes reacted with utter violence, basically. Now, um, if you read Michel Foucault's work, it's massively interesting that he tells basically the same story. He makes the point that nation states, so his point is that the French Revolution, which results in the first emergence of a nation state ever, was a race war, right? So there, he basically says that the French Revolution was a fight between three groups that understood themselves alternatively as race, as society, or as society, basically. It's interesting, and he makes a point that race and society were synonyms in the 18th century, and for all uh, his socialist critiques, he has this, you know, in German you say Seiten, in English, I guess, he could stab them. Uh, why? Because the, the, he shows that where Marx and, and Engels got the concept of class struggle from, is from the struggle of for survival, so a, a transfer from the biological to the social one. Anyhow, Foucault's point was that the, the French Revolution was a race war. Three races were fighting, or three races slash societies were fighting with one another. The, the Gauls, the, uh, the Franks, and, and the, the Romans, the Romans that was the king, the Franks that was the aristocracy, and, and the Gauls were the people of the Aretat. And uh, then the Gauls succeeded in eliminating sort of a genocide, if you will, two races slash societies and said, we are the people of France. They meant that they, the Gaul, and not the Franks or the Romans, are people of France. And uh, what leads, the, the context in which Foucault makes this analysis is the rise of biopower. So it's the recognition that the biological existence of a, of a state or of a society is basically equivalent to the political existence. So the biological and the political are through the social, directly linked. And so the reason for a state to attend to the health of its people is purely basically biopolitics, right? It's the existence or it's the, it's the, it's the conflation of biological existence and political existence. So uh, once Foucault discovered this, he, um, at the end of, uh, Il faut défendre la société, or society must be defended, basically comes up with the question, uh, first, she comes up with a suggestion that everybody who cares about the social to this day is kind of a racist, which, of course, is an outrageous provocation in the 1970s, uh, also presumably unjustified, but uh, he, wanted to, he clearly wanted to articulate that provocation. And he says, how can one care about health or about biopower positively without being a racist? For him, a massive struggle or question in the mid-70s. And you can see how, how all of Foucault's work is basically changing after that, that one event. Instead of writing about madness or sex or biopower, he starts writing about corn prices. He starts writing about the population as a concept. And he's fully looking for himself for an alternative of analysis that is free of the concept of the social or of struggle, which was a term that he used a lot before. So uh, his solution which was, uh, again, a provocation for many, is uh, neoliberalism or the German order liberals and their state phobia. So the, the, the chapter in The Birth of Biopolitics um, that is about state phobia is a breakthrough for him. He can basically suddenly imagine a concept of humanity or of living together or of analysis that is free from the state and the social. 
Nawaz Foucault, an idiot who just embraced neoliberalism and, and, you know, clapped the shoulder of Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and said, hey, thank you for liberating us from the social. Presumably not. Uh, was Anna Arendt a complete idiot who just basically was, uh, you know, uh, falling in love naively with American capitalism? Presumably not. So, um, but both, I think, saw was the, that the concept of society and the social were problematic and that one was in need of learning to think differently or without them. So part of the provocation that the Gates Foundation has been for me is an effort to come up with a critical anthropology that does not rely on the concepts of society or the social. This is tremendously difficult, but that's what I tried to allude to at the end of the interview that Stacy kindly made with me. And then, so the, the second thing is, what, what's the alternative of the Gates people to the social? Well, that's a very tricky thing. Because their alternative, strictly speaking, is a different kind of infrastructure that does not work through national societies, but that works through NGOs and philanthropies and, and industry. Often this, this infrastructure is organized by consultants, so there is a certain market logic. But what one can say is that what's at the core of this new infrastructure, or of this global health infrastructure, is an understanding of humans, or of humanity, as biological. I do think that I, I can confidently say that for the for most of the people at the Gates Foundation, the social is maybe not a given. It's just a form of organizing things, but that humans are biological things is is obvious. That that that's not to be discussed or questioned. So sort of would you ask that question, you would probably get the answer. Don't be an idiot, right? But for the anthropologist, we precisely know that biology did not exist as an epistemic field before 1800. Foucault has this famous phrase that he says, historians want to write the history of biology in the 18th century, but they don't recognize that that's impossible. It's an anachronism. And why is it an anachronism? Well, because biology did not exist in the 18th century. Why did it not exist? Well, because life itself was not existing before then was not existing before 1800. What he means by that is basically that the idea of life itself as something that organizes a body functionally was not existing to anybody before. And so the discipline that would study this vital, these vital workings of the body, biology, did not exist. So there is a conceptual rupture, a before and an after, and that's what we're responding to. And I think that many anthropologists of biology and many historians of biology have basically sought to map out how biology since 1800 has been evolving, has become um, a multitude of epistemic fields, and clearly the Gates Foundation is adapted to this epistemic field. Or field. I would say that, that the, a large part of the global health field is adapted to this epistemic field, humans as biological things. So that needs to be just as much anthropologized as I just sought to anthropologize the concept of the social and of society. I suppose the question has an implicit assumption, and that is this new discourse or approach seeks to distance people or identity from the nation state. That is to say, it's not, it doesn't hinge on it. It sees, it conceptualizes populations beyond these kinds of boundaries that we've created. And I suppose the implicit assumption there is what does that mean for the individual in this whole situation? Statelessness is maybe a, maybe it's a strong word to say. Maybe, maybe it's just a, a different form of being, being part of being this disease population. 
means that you're um, part of a broader community. But for the individual, for a sense of belonging, what does that mean? Maybe this is a question about the discipline of anthropology. So I think um, I just want to repeat the terms that you use. People, identity, uh, belonging, and community. And then if we have statelessness, does this decontextualize them? What kinds of humans does it produce? So, uh, I just want to alert you to the alternative words we have available. Um, if you speak about belonging, and you speak about belonging in a national sense, and you speak about people and identity in, in, in a national or local or earthbound sense, hmm, you enter very tricky water. I don't think that I would want to subscribe myself to these terms. So I want my critique of the statelessness or of globalization to be free from a political vocabulary that I think of as very problematic. Okay. So that doesn't mean that the, the alternative is an, a naive embrace of statelessness or of the global, of course not. So uh, we're left in a situation where we recognize that some of the vocabulary we have doesn't work. We recognize that some processes are evolving right now that we do not really understand. And that's precisely where uh, their research becomes really attractive. You want to find out how the world is currently changing so that, that, that you understand what humans are becoming. So, strictly speaking, I have no idea because I'm working in Seattle and I'm working in Boston and I'm working in Maryland. So I, I'm, I'm not working, um, let's say, in, in um, South Africa or not, I'm not working among people who have viscerolationiasis in, in India. So I don't know. But, but what I do know is that the people I work with have have strong feelings about this. So they, they have strong feelings about a global world. Some of them are genuine uh, left intellectuals who have joined the Gates Foundation. I would say that's an irony, but that's exactly what makes the place interesting and very difficult to classify for easy critique. And the work of some anthropologists, I think especially of Yun Kim Nguyen or of Joao Biel, has clearly shown that Global health NGOs that go to faraway places, or that go to in Vin Kim's place, Cote d'Ivoire, or in Joao's place to Brazil, tend to lose some people and tend to privilege those people who are capable, uh, for whatever reason, to align themselves with the global health discourse. So that their Joao calls this will to live, right? So if you can foster the will to live, that uh, NGOs that hand out uh, ARVs try to foster so that you can live up to a strict regimen of when you take your drugs, that you basically change your self-attitude, then, uh, you know, uh, things work for you. Or in, in, in Vin Kim's place, the Republic of Therapy, if you can basically, to, if you can mention to become stateless and thus become a member of a Republic of Therapy that runs diagonal to nation states, then, then you can flourish and thrive. So in my own work, I have to rely on these examples. So global health produces and privileges certain kinds of people and, and not others. That's absolutely correct. And, and there is also a, a problem, maybe for anthropology at large, that I think you were alluding to. So precisely in so far as anthropologists are experts of the local and hence of people and of identity, which has become a keyword in the mid-80s, sort of a replacement term for culture, we wanted to know the identity of people, we want to help them further their identity and so on. 
how do we how how would anthropology anthropology possibly positively engage with statelessness? It's a, you know that's like a massive challenge. But I think that the the question here is not an either or question. There will be some anthropologists or experts of the local, and that's exactly how it should be. And they should basically articulate their critique of global health from their perspective. But there might also be anthropologists of those people who try to basically build a global humanity producing infrastructure and who will describe that. And then, uh, these, you know, we, we can sit together and can have a conversation about this. Maybe. Maybe not so much negative critique, but maybe we can look at how it informs different practices or different um, ways of studying humanity. Well, so if you ask me personally as to be us, I have to tell you that my research, and I think I briefly allude to this in the paper, so the very idea that there is something like a humanity, a global world-encompassing humanity, did not exist before the late 18th century. This is when the term was basically popping up. Mm-hmm. Has, for example, written about this, and you know, a whole army of German conceptual historians have written about this. <clears throat> and what, what's interesting there is that we all tend to think that humanity is a given, but uh, you can just think about this yourself. Before you have basically a global sense or before you were forced to have an abstract enough concept of the human so that all humans living on Earth could be qualified or classified as humans, many things needed to happen. That's not obvious. It's not an obvious term. A lot of concept work, a lot of comparison, a lot of thinking needed to go into this. And then you look at, let's say, late 18th, late 18th, early 19th century programs or efforts to establish humanity, to allow for humanity, you will recognize that the overwhelming majority of them is basically focused on the nation state and very early has a family of nations. So if you read, let's say, uh, Halder, or in English, Herder, um, you will recognize that in the late 18th century, he writes basically about different nations in different places. Some of them have a state, some of them are not ready for him to have a state, etc., etc. So if you're at that point and you recognize that humanity is a concept, one that it's very difficult to separate from projects to achieve it, then you have you have two things. One is a before. There was clearly a very long stretch of time, or let's pluralize this, there were many, many stretches of time when people could think about humans without the term humanity around or without an abstract concept of humanity. And then you have at least one after or presumably a zillion of afters where uh, either the term humanity is not central anymore, or it's thought differently from how it was thought before. So maybe it's a good thing to pluralize the concepts of humanity. So anthropology as a discipline is clearly adapted to the nation-state concept of humanity. We classically go to one place, classically, so late 19th, early 20th century, study one group of people, we understand them as a nation. Many early anthropologists, early 20th century, have written in this language. We study them. We assume, let's take Evans Pritchard and the Noir, that there is sort of an intrinsic link between the Noir and their land, blah, 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 blah. So you have a very classical nation-state concept of humanity that is totally central for anthropology. So it's no surprise to a certain degree that anthropology is about identity, place, people, locality, nations. And one question is, how can anthropology as a discipline 
learn that the concepts it has are time and place specific, are provincial in that sense. So anthropology in the language of Chris Chakrabarty has also to learn to provincialize itself. And how can one then do an anthropology of global spaces without, and I want to emphasize this, uh, you know, with a lot of exclamation marks and underlining it a couple of times, without losing the critical knowledge that we have when it comes to things like globalization. I'm in my work and in my methods, certainly nominalist, and, and that means that I cannot ground my analysis in established conceptions of the human or of uh, humanity, because I know that they're time and place specific and that they might change again. And it's this change that I'm most interested in from a critical perspective. And I guess that's uh, why you state you're an anthropologist of knowledge or um, an anthropologist of thinking. Yeah, I always, I, I try different words or concepts for this. Sometimes it's anthropology of knowledge. Sometimes I call it of thought. Now I, I'm, right now I'm writing about anthropology of thought and the human emotion and things like that. But that's, you're, you're right. And that's also why at the end of the article I, I, I quote uh, Alexandre de Tocqueville and says, Il faut une science politique nouvelle. So basically, when he uh, writes about democracy in America, he recognizes that the entire uh, political vocabulary that um, the French who live in, in uh, you know, uh, in a different world at that time, their entire uh, political vocabulary, which is uh, inherited from the um, ancien régime or the, the, the previous regime, when you have kings and things like that, does not apply at all to the democracy that you have in America. Different conceptions of the human, different conceptions of living together, different conceptions of the law. And so he basically says, a new world seems to be breaking open here. Our old vocabulary does not apply to this world anymore. Clearly, that doesn't mean that politics is over. It means that we have to study this world carefully and have to come up with a new political vocabulary that helps us understand it and organize it. And he adds, but we do not even dare dreaming of this. Why? Well, because we're conservative, he says. I'm not saying we are. He says we are conservative, or most of us are conservative. We stick to the terms we have. If the new thing does not live up to it, it's bad. So I, I think that, that anthropology should basically study such breaking open of, of such breaking opens of a new world or new productions of humanity. It should basically not normatively critique it, but expose its norms and try to come up with a new critical vocabulary in such situations. Well, that's what I really appreciated about your article, because while it is about global health, more specifically, it's about investigating these terms that we use and problematizing them. It's always great to have that shakeup in thinking. Well, if, if, you, if you want to be provocative, you could say that I'm working by the method of exposure, and I expose anthropology <clears throat> and its vocabulary in my field site and see if they get derailed. If they get derailed, I get really excited and interested. And then I'm, most of my work is about trying to capture this derailment. Yeah, without, I repeat that, without giving up critical capacity or potential. I know that this is tremendously provocative to a, a lot of people. Yeah. No, definitely. It's a, it's a new way or another way of doing anthropology. And again, if we're if we're still tied to this notion of I'm going to go to a field site that is bound to a nation state, well, and it's putting you on the spot, I apologize, you don't have to answer, but what would you propose that one starts doing in the future? 
that is, you know, not only rethinking and investigating the terms that we're using, but how might we pursue the next stage of anthropology? So, um, so the, the good news is I, I have no answer and I do not <clears throat> wish to have an answer because, so for, for me, it's not about, so first thing to say is, uh, yeah, this is maybe a, some way of doing anthropology, but there are many people who predate me. Uh, you know, my supervisor was Paul Rabino. Uh, I, I learned an enormous amount from Lawrence Cohen. There are people like Vincent Adams or Stephen Collier or Ellen Young or Margaret Locke. And I could sort of provide you with a long, large list. Peter Radfield, Miriam Tickton, you know, the, uh, Joao Biel, I just mentioned, Vin Kim is doing uh, incredible work, Warwick Anderson. There are a lot of people who are basically trying to engage um, global health as a, as a challenge or who are trying to think about the possibility of an anthropology of knowledge. And I think that the more there are, the better, because we, we want to have a plurality of voices rather than one tiny school or something like this. So um, then the next thing is, I don't think that the times of, of anthropology as an expertise of the local is over or something like this. I think the discipline cannot afford this, should not afford it. I think it would be an utter stupidity to organize uh, anthropology, like, you know, to reorganize it in a new way as a global discipline or something like this. No, 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 no. I, I, so I'm totally shying away from this. And I'm not looking for... Um, a replacement or a substitute or a new theory or something like this. I think that different kinds of projects have different kinds of challenges. And so if you do feedback and you expose your critical vocabulary in your feedback and you recognize it does not match, it gets derailed, there is a difference between the language and the theories I have available and the kinds of things I find here then it's your responsibility to reinvent anthropology through this one particular single field site. You should not make the mistake that Clifford Geert so nicely speak about, uh, spoke about. He said, the major mistake that anthropologists make is the equation of my village, the world. So I think we should stick basically to this. So that I repeat this uh, in more explicit prose. My goal is not a substitute or a new approach that could be coherently applied. I think every field site, and you notice that I stick to the term field site, every field site produces its own questions, produces its own possibilities of understanding, and produces its own anthropology. And the challenge of the field worker, as I see it, is um, to be sensitive to, these productive, to the productive quality of her field site and to try to capture it. So you recognize that this is very different from the idea that you have some theory and you already know you write about, you know, don't want to say a topic now, otherwise I, I make a topic negative. So you write about something that you know from beforehand and you have a theory that you're going to apply, let's say biopower, and then you write about biopower elsewhere. Uh, you know, uh, just all you need is some feedback to produce some data. I think that that's not, not, not very um, attractive. It's an empirical research-based concept of anthropology more than anything else. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anthropod. Stacy and I would like to thank Tobias Rees for speaking with us. If you'd like to find out more about Professor Rees's work, you can visit the show notes at callant.org. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And for the latest updates from the Society for Culture and Anthropology, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Collins. I'm Rupa Palai. Thanks for listening.